It is your grace in which we stand and in which we rejoice, our great God. Grace that is free and sovereign, moved only by your own holy will, your own goodness, your own nature to love and express that love to us, the unworthy, the guilty, the condemned by our own nature because of sin. And yet, you gave your Son and demonstrated your love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and then he was raised for us. And it is by that death and that resurrection and the work of the Spirit in our lives that we are gathered here this morning to offer you praise, to hear you with hearts awakened, eyes opened, deaf ears made to hear, to hear you speak to us through your word. And we pray that we would hear and that we would respond with the faith and the love and the obedience and the instructed hearts that you have designed this very morning for And so we offer it to you, we ask your assistance and grace, and we pray in the matchless name of Christ, amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 15. Once again, we began in this section of scripture last week, Uh, we did not finish, we will do so uh, this morning. And we are going then to conclude this opening woes of Jesus and his rebuke of the Jewish leadership and prepare our hearts for gathering around the Lord's table this morning. Uh, To begin, I want to give a quote from a book called Let the Nations Be Glad, written by John Piper. It opens with these words, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, and because God is ultimate, not man, end quote. And that is a true statement, and it well defines that our hearts should be not only in missions, but in all evangelistic efforts. And I mention it here because I imagine that those whom Jesus will be referencing in our passage, the Pharisaical Jews, said, and at some level may have even believed, that they were by their teaching, increasing the worship of God, the one true God, the God of Israel. And that could be said probably at some level to all kinds of missionaries who go out into the world promoting error and heresy, that they think that in some way and in some measure they are serving God. But of course, just the opposite is true, and it's true because they had the wrong message. And therefore, they had the wrong God. Essential to missions is not only zeal, but truth. It's crucial that we go, but that we go with the right message about the right God and the right way to be reconciled Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus has already addressed the error of these leaders back in verse 13, who again did not have the right message, though it had much truth in it, but it also had enough error to condemn those who were engrafted in into their false religious system. Now we begin last week by looking at the first of these two woes in which Jesus confronts these leaders for corrupting salvation in the name of God. Corrupting salvation in the name of God. In verse 13 we noted that they were preventing and perverting the way to God And in verse 15, we'll notice that they are spreading condemnation in the name of God. So we will begin by 
reading our passage, then we'll review in a little bit more detail this morning the error that these Pharisees were involved in, and then we'll look at their spreading of this condemnation and error to others. Read with me, please, beginning in chapter 23, verse 13 and verse 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Again, in verse 15, Jesus is addressing the error of these leaders, and they were preventing and perverting the way to God. Or in the words of Jesus, they were shutting off the kingdom of heaven from people or before men, or you could say shutting the the door of salvation in the face of men. And they were doing this essentially in two ways, two ways. First, by their opposition to Jesus, by their opposition to the person and to the ministry of Jesus. They continually sought to discredit him before the people. They opposed his works. They opposed his teaching, even accusing him of working by the power of Satan. They ultimately sought to destroy him, and they ultimately did have their way in one sense by handing him over to be crucified by the Roman authorities. And they not only opposed him throughout his ministry and all the way to the end of his life, But they continued to oppose him by opposing the message of Christ that went out through his disciples, through his apostles, and through his church. Even after the resurrection and ascension, they continued their ministry of opposing Christ. Now there are many examples of this in Luke. I'm tempted to read through all of them. Let me read just a couple. In chapter 6, verse 12... There was the ministry of the gospel going out through Stephen. And he says, however, in opposition to that, that some had stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. He was speaking in the name of Christ and they wanted to stop it. And so they went and they grabbed him, they seized him and brought him before the council to be punished. And this happens continually throughout the book of Acts. But there was a second way then that they shut off the kingdom of heaven from people or um, from men, from among the face of men. And this is really also what is behind their opposition to Christ. And they did this then, shut off the kingdom of heaven through their false religious system. Their false religious system. Now, because of the significance of this error, which is behind Jesus' statement in verse 15 that we'll look at in just a moment, it's important to consider in a bit more detail how significant this error and this deception was that they promoted and by which they blinded the people of God to their God. Let me begin by just reminding you of what righteousness was in the life of an Old Testament saint. Now, at the heart of the law is the revelation of God's holiness and His righteousness. God is revealing His righteous 
character and his righteous nature through his law, through his law that he gave to his people. Now, because we are sinners, the law had a basic function, among other things, of exposing our sin. And this is precisely what Paul said, as was mentioned last week in Romans chapter 3. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, a specific knowledge of sin, as our lives are exposed to fail to conform to the holiness of God that's revealed in his law. Therefore, the Old Testament law also included the sacrificial system. In this provision, the Israelite worshiper would bring the proper animal sacrifice. He would lay his head on the hand of the animal. Then he would slay what animal was brought. And then the priest, it would be given over to the priest. And the priest would offer it up according to the prescription for that particular sacrifice. Thus, the animal provided a substitute sacrifice for the sin of the individual. And then this was pictured on a national level on the Day of Atonement when the sins of the nation were atoned for and by the second goat removed from the presence of Israel as it was sent out into the wilderness. Now, the idea then was that the animal died in place of the sinner. The sin that separates the sinner from God was in a sense removed and the Israelite worshiper was either restored and maintained his communion and his fellowship with the God of Israel. Now with their sin atoned for and fellowship with God maintained, the law revealed that reveals the righteousness of God that convicts the sinner also becomes in that same law the delight of the sinner. So the godly man in Psalm 1 is one who delights in the law of God. Because in the law of God, the righteousness of God and the holiness of God and the wisdom of God is revealed. The psalmist in Psalm 119 could say, Oh, how I love your law. And this is because they were not looking to the law as a means of attaining or gaining righteousness from God. That couldn't happen. That was the point of the sacrifice. They were sinners. Their sin needed to be atoned for. Their love for the law was because of a heart that lived in gratitude to God for what He had provided for them. An atonement for their sin. So it was never a means of meeting fully the holiness of God that was required to be in His presence. And the regenerate Israelite The saved Israelite trusted only in the grace and the promise and the loving kindness of God. And we see this illustrated in the life of David, who sinned grievously. And he says at the beginning of Psalm 51, his psalm of repentance, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my iniquity. God, you must do this. He says later, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. But the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite spirit. He says, then, then you will delight in the righteous sacrifice. In other words, it's not the deed itself. It was the mercy of God that was received by the believing sinner pictured in the sacrifice that was offered that then produced in that sinner a sense of gratefulness to God for His mercy and loving kindness. So those in the kingdom of God in the Old Testament who knew their God in truth understood their sin, they were convicted by the law, 
They trusted in the promise and the mercy and the loving kindness of God and pictured in the sacrifice that stood as a substitute for their sin and they pursued righteousness. They indeed hungered and thirsted after righteousness which Jesus will mention in the Sermon on the Mount about those who are in the kingdom of God. Their ultimate hope then Though this was in varying degrees of clarity as the progress of Revelation continued throughout the Old Testament. But their ultimate hope was in a provision of God. One who would come who would finally remove the curse of their sin. Now this was first given in Genesis chapter 3.15. The seed of the woman. One who would come from the seed of the woman would ultimately crush Satan on the head and defeat his works of leading the human race into sin. Now, for example, we see in Luke chapter 2, we won't turn there, in the lives of Simeon and in the lives of Anna, they were waiting for this consolation of Israel. And when Christ was in the temple, and when he was there going through what the Jewish male did at that time, they were given the knowledge to know that this was the provision of God for the salvation of Israel. This is what they had long hoped for. And now he had arrived. Now the apex of this promise in the Old Testament is, of course, Isaiah chapter 53. Which, among other things in that chapter, he says this. That the Lord was pleased to crush him, this one who would come, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. By his knowledge or his experience of his suffering, the anguish of his soul that he would experience by the Father. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And this is precisely what God did in sending the Son. Precisely what the Son accomplished in coming in obedience to the Father, taking on human flesh, going to the cross, bearing the curse of the law, and then rising from the dead. He was, as we've been reading in Hebrews, the ultimate and the final sacrifice once for all. I won't go back and read all of those verses. We read them this morning, or Pastor Reardon did, about Christ being the final and complete sacrifice For our sin. Verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So the system that was shadows is done away with. The substance has come in Christ. He is the final and the complete sacrifice for sin. In him by faith the sinner is justified once for all. And that means then he is declared finally righteous based on Christ's righteousness, not personal righteousness. Now that is essentially the gospel of Christ as our substitute. Now why go through all of this? Because it was the error of the scribes and the Pharisees, it was this religious system that they had created that hid this work of God that was the hope of the true Israelite and the promise to His people throughout the ages. And they were hiding this from God. And they did this in one measure by hiding the true intent of the law of God from His people. It's how they shut people out of the kingdom of heaven and making them, as he'll describe them in verse 15, sons of hell. Their religious system 
removed from the law its power to convict the sinner of their sin. It covered over in truth the holiness and the righteousness of God. And it did not produce in the people a genuine hungering and thirsting after the righteousness of God because it created for them another kind of righteousness. A righteousness that could be attained by man in this life. So it wasn't that it broke them, humbled them, devastated them, made them poor in spirit. In fact, it bolstered them and encouraged them to trust at some degree in their own righteousness before God. That's why he said in Matthew 5.20 that you need a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. The righteousness they have is only what is attainable by man. You need something supernatural, an alien righteousness, another kind of righteousness, something that God will provide for you. Now, we won't turn there again, but you well remember the prayer of the one who trusted in himself that he was righteous in Luke 18. Father, I thank you that I'm not like these others. I pay tithes of all that I get, etc. They had a system that promoted that kind of thinking, and that was the problem. That was the problem. It's very important then to understand that they did not deny God's word. As a matter of fact, they promoted themselves, they sat in the chair of Moses, as being the ones who were the most committed and zealous for God's word. But again, they hid it with their man-made traditions and teachings. And it's not that they denied the need for sacrifice. They fully participated in the temple system. The problem is this, for them the sacrifice was not a reminder of their helplessness but simply another part of their system of obedience that they had established that was part of their own righteousness. And Now as a footnote here, this is why when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and essentially the sacrificial system was abolished as it is even up to this day, Phariseeism was the main, as it had been coming into the first century, after the first century, the main influencer of Jewish religion up to this day. And it was able to adapt because they already had another kind of righteousness in place. They didn't need the sacrifices. They simply added to their traditions to make up for what they lost in temple worship. And so that's a very important point. And we have to understand how subtle and how blinding this error is and how it contributed to the blindness of the nation that has largely lasted to this very day and will not be removed until God removes it in His own time. Now, this is not only the system of apostate Judaism. And it's very important, and I spent a little more time on that so you can understand some of the deception that is behind the system and how it still is alive and well today, and not only in Judaism, but also within Roman Catholicism. And so I want to spend a little bit of time understanding how this error is perpetrated within that religion that has equally blinded the eyes of many and shut off the kingdom of heaven from millions. Now, there are many aspects that could be addressed, such as the sacramental system, such as the Mass, Eucharist, the role of Mary, and so on. But I'm only going to focus on one thing, and that is the Roman Catholic understanding of justification by faith. 
justification by faith. And of course, more could be said, but I hope to get at least at the heart of it to help us understand what it is they believe and how it is wrong. And the point also is to show how close error can sound to truth and how subtle this error can be and hopefully unfold part of the deception that lied behind what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 23. Now, if you speak to a Roman Catholic, they will readily admit that they're saved by grace alone. They will readily admit that they're saved by grace alone and not by works of the law. But it's important to understand what they mean by this. In Roman Catholic uh, system, justification is not a single act. It's not something declared. It's not a one-time event. It's not over. It is in, with Roman Catholicism, a process It's a process, a synergistic process really where we work along with God by the power of the Spirit and through our relationship with the church. Another way to say that, and I'll say this simply, is that righteousness is not something that's imputed, counted, or reckoned to the sinner. It's something that's infused into the sinner through Christ and by the Spirit. In other words... Sanctification, being made more holy, being made more like Christ, is blended together with justification, the completed work of Christ on our behalf. So in other words, being made holy is a part of being justified. Okay, Being made holy is a part of being justified within that system. In other words, it's not a completed righteousness that is credited to you, but a righteousness that is started in you and in which you participate in which you participate. This working of the believer within the Roman Catholicism includes then participation in the Roman Catholic sacramental system through which this grace is mediated and perfected. The Council of Trent, which Vatican II did not reverse, says this, among other things, but says this, If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of its increase, let him be anathema. And that is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So essentially justification which starts... Uh, at baptism, at which regeneration takes place and faith is infused into the baptized person, it is then also completed as they participate with the church in obedience and the sacramental, sacramental system. Now, by doing this, the believer maintains and completes their righteousness that will gain them entrance into heaven. So what that means then is the sacrifice of Christ within Roman Catholicism, is necessary, absolutely necessary and essential, but it is not sufficient for our entrance into heaven. It is not sufficient alone, it is only necessary. It's not his righteousness alone, but also the personal righteousness of the believer. And this is why, for example, that they have purgatory. Because in purgatory, God is satisfying his justice for sins that are committed by the believer after their regeneration, after the beginning of justification, their sins are then 
uh, burned off, as it were, in purgatory, and then that sinner himself is by that process made righteous enough to enter into heaven and into the presence of God. Again, it is because it is a personal righteousness of the sinner that's needed, not solely and completely and only the righteousness of Christ. Now, let me give you one more thing, and this is very helpful or important for us to understand. If you were to say to a thinking Roman Catholic, not somebody who just kind of goes every now and then, but to a thinking Roman Catholic or to a Roman Catholic priest, both of which I've had these conversations and learned through those conversations uh, what it is that they think, if you were to say to them that they believe in a works righteousness, they will deny it. They will completely deny it. They will say, we do not believe in a works righteousness. And in their mind, that would be true. That would be true. Because by this, what they're saying is this. They deny the idea that by their works, they obligate God to save them. That they somehow obligate God to allow him, them into heaven. They would say this, that God, by grace and through Christ, enables them to do good works by faith, which are then counted as their own righteousness because of their originating in Christ and being done in faith. In other words... They would argue that because the works originate in Christ from the believer's grace relationship that they're involved in with Him and by the Spirit, it's not works righteousness, but it's a grace kind of righteousness. And so it's not by their works, they would argue. And they would say then what Paul is condemning in the New Testament is righteousness by works of the law. In other words, not not works done by grace and through faith, but works that the believer himself is doing on his own to gain Christ or to gain righteousness. Do you see the distinction? It's very subtle. It's very subtle and wrapped in very um, subtle language. But it is error and it is deception. What Paul is condemning in the New Testament is not simply works of the law as to the Mosaic law. He's not simply opposing that and contradicting that as uh, with grace. But he is opposing any human effort or activity that can be counted as righteousness and added to the work of Christ or in any way contributing to one's own righteousness and salvation. Now, we don't have time to spend what would we really need to on that, but let me just give you one, one verse uh, out of Galatians. And I'm skipping over the much that could be said, but let me give you this. Judaizers, which we meet with in Acts 15, professed faith in Christ as Messiah and said we need to believe in Him. But they also believed that there was a certain parts of the Mosaic law that also, as an expression of that faith, needed to be done. One of those key works was circumcision, was circumcision. And so Paul says to these Judaizers, which we meet with throughout his epistles that he's always arguing against, he says this, he says in verse 5, Behold, I say to you that if you receive, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 2, Uh, I say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So essentially, anything that you want to do, even if you say that you're doing it in faith... In obedience to God, if you're doing that and in any way relying on that for a righteousness that will 
move God or be a part of God's acceptance of you. It is a false righteousness. That's why Paul says all Jew and Gentile are under sin and they're all lawbreakers. And justification comes by faith through Christ alone and it is completed. We are counted completely righteous in Christ based on his righteousness alone, not our personal righteousness. What Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Salvation and righteousness is totally in Christ and it is completed. To add anything to it is to then destroy grace. It is to add works and to shut people off from the kingdom of heaven. This is their error, and it's an error that is alive and well today. And now in the same way, the scribes and Pharisees then are blinding people with this kind of error and spreading that error to other places with their false system and keeping people from the truth of God. Let's look at verse 15. This will go much quicker. So he says to them now in verse 15, you have, an, you have a system that is blinding men to their sin, to God's provision of a Savior, to their need of God's righteousness alone. You're spreading error and you're opposing the very one God sent to save men. And then he says in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and on land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Not only are you blind and guilty and deceived, but you're spreading this spiritual poison to others and blinding them also. And again, I would remind us that these are nothing less than workers of Satan. He told them that they are of their father the devil. Paul will use the same language in 2 Corinthians saying that these teachers come and just as Satan deceived Eve in the garden, so these false teachers are deceiving or seeking to deceive men in the true church of God. He calls them false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. And so that's precisely what he is addressing here. They profess to be teachers of righteousness, but they are spreading death instead of life. Now he says here, interestingly, you travel about on sea and on dry land. In other words, you put effort into spreading your message. Now interestingly, there's not a whole lot of historical information on Jewish missions. It's suggested by some, and I think this is probably correct, that Jesus is referring primarily to the various synagogues and Jewish centers of worship that were scattered uh, throughout lands outside of Palestine in what is known as the Diaspora. In other words, where Jews were scattered into Gentile lands, yet they maintained their Jewish religion and worship, and by that also had an influence on some of the places where they were for Judaism and for those coming who wanted to worship the Israelite God. And the fact is the Jews did have an awareness at some level of their role as witnesses. That the God of Israel was also the God of the nations and he was to be worshipped by them as much as he was to be worshipped by Israel. This goes all the way back to the covenant with Abraham. In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
Solomon pictures this idea of the universal reign of God as king in Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11. And it's throughout the prophets. For time, I won't go there. But I will mention just one place. In Isaiah chapter 56, let me give you just one example of this. He says in Isaiah 56, speaking of the fact that God would accept all who worship Him in truth. Worship Him according to uh, as He is. He says in verse 3, Let not the foreigner, or verse 2, How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath, keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, this would be a proselyte, essentially, the Lord will surely separate me from His people, nor let the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. In Isaiah 55, He had just said, Turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. They understood that those who joined themselves to the nation of Israel could receive also the benefits, the covenant benefits that God had intended for them. So God's promises were never exclusive nationally or religiously. Gentiles were always allowed to participate in the religion of Judaism and the worship of their God if they acknowledged Him as the true God and lived under the authority of His Word. There was, of course, with the example of Jonah... Also, an attitude of hatred or separation from the Gentiles. Jonah, of course, is probably the the worst, the bottom level of this, when he wanted Nineveh to be destroyed uh, and did not want them to be saved, even wanting 120,000 children uh, to be destroyed along with it. He had no compassion for them. And that does at some level represent their attitude. But certainly, by the time that we come into the first century, that was mitigated to a significant degree. And there was much more of an openness to receiving Gentiles into the religion of Judaism. So he says here to make one proselyte. One proselyte. This is used only three other times in the New Testament. In Acts 6.5 and Acts 2.10, there were proselytes that were present at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. In Acts 6.5, a man named Nicholas is described as a proselyte from Antioch and, and in other places. Now some would hold then that those who are called proselytes are also uh, those who are called God-fearers in Scripture. They'd say that's another way to refer to a proselyte. However, the identification of a God-fearer did not necessarily mean they were full converts to Judaism, only that they were significantly drawn to the religion of Judaism, but they had not yet come all of the way. Cornelius, for example, is an example of this in Acts chapter 10 too. And sometimes these who were God-fearers, who had a great respect for the religion of Judaism, had a great admiration for their law and for their ceremonies and so on and so forth, were called proselytes at the gate. It means they had come up to the entrance, but they had not come all the way in. They were not yet full converts over to Judaism. Now this is an important then distinction to make. A full proselyte, however, was one that had come all the way over, had embraced every part of the Judaistic system, and had fully embraced every part of their religion, was circumcised, 
underwent a ceremony of purification, which was not baptism by immersion, but it did involve water, a purification ceremony, and were fully identified with the Jews. And so they understood this. Romans 3.29, Is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. However, when this happened, when one became a full proselyte, listen to what Jesus says. You make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. You make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Whatever good may have been done by them, whatever potential there was to their ministry, it was totally corrupted. Totally corrupted. Corrupted by their false system of righteousness and deception about God and how men might know Him. They spread their error of works righteousness and they condemned all of those who would have otherwise been converting to a true knowledge of God. They were not winning people to God, but to a religious system. And not only that, they weren't concerned about these people's souls. They weren't concerned about their coming to know the true covenant blessings of the God of Israel. They were seeking only their own vanity, increasing their own power base, as it were. Listen to what Paul says to the Judaizers in Galatians 6.13. He says, For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. These were not concerned about men coming to be reconciled to God, but again, increasing their own power base, as it were. And so it is today. People may be one to various forms of religion that are somehow attached to the name of Christianity, but they're not one to Christ, but to a religious system. They're one to false hopes of blessing or the promise of some form of religious experience, but not to Christ. And so instead they become, as Jesus says here, a son of hell. Son of means they have the same nature as those who are in hell. They have the same nature and they have the same end and they have the same marks of those for whom hell was created, which he tells us in Matthew 25, 41, is for the devil and his angels. They are of their father, the devil. And he says you can make them twice as much this condition. What does he mean by this? Because the reality is, when someone is won over to that system, it becomes to them yet another layer of deception and blinding error that keeps them from the truth of God. And it holds them in their, its darkness. And oftentimes they become more zealous than their teachers. It just acts as another layer to condemn them in their sin. And I can't help but think as we go through this, or as I do, of the many Roman Catholic missionaries in the countries they dominated and have for so many generations resided in darkness. They did not win them over to Christ, but to a false system of religion. And you can think of the many nations in which Catholicism has had the most influence that are marked by superstition and idolatry and all kinds of paganism mixed in with some form of supposedly religion and worship of Christ. Whole countries, Mexico, South America, parts of Europe and Africa, dominated by this system. I've been to Croatia 
before and been in churches and seen the relics and people worshiping them, praying outside to large statues of Mary, hoping to receive to her from her some blessings. Stations set up in the streets of Zagreb to light candles and false worship. Known of young people in the church there, the missionaries that we support in that area, who have been excluded from their homes, from their friends, who in some cases beaten because of their faith in Christ, because it opposed the Catholic Church and teaching. So this is just as serious in our day as it was in theirs. This is a false system. It is a blinding system. And it is a deceiving system. And so much of the missions that goes on, so much in the name of Christ, is in error. Much is good, but much is in error. They are preaching another Christ and another gospel. Promises salvation, uses much of the same language, but it has a twist. There are 19 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the world at present, the statistic I saw, and growing in Asia and the Pacific Islands and Africa. As of 2013, there were over 75,000 Mormon missionaries, certainly there are more now, and 19 million members. At a gathering celebrating uh, an anniversary in the Mormon church, their then president Thomas Monson said this, The church continues to grow steadily and to change the lives of more and more people every year. It is spreading across the earth as our missionary force seeks out those who are searching for the truth. That is from the Mormon leader. And the Roman Catholic Church reports a membership of over a billion people in the world. So Jesus is condemning that. He's condemning that. He's saying you need to know the truth. And these who are purporting to be the teachers of God, they don't have it. It's a wrong system. It's error. And it makes people children of hell. Now we can say against that, also, or in contrast, or with that, that while Satan has his false witnesses and deceitful workers, God has also sent his true messengers into the world. Matthew 16, 19, Jesus promised to Peter and to the disciples I will give you the keys of the kingdom, which is the message of Christ. It is the message and the proclamation of Christ. And Christ commands us then to go into all of the nations and bring the message of Christ. Paul said when he went, well, he said to the church at Corinth, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ, Jesus, and Him crucified. And that is the message by which they are saved. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 10. After saying, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the news of good things. And bring the true message of Christ. Now what's the point of these numbers? It's twofold and we'll end with this. First, 
that we might understand the full import of Jesus' words here. False religion is a serious thing, and a false gospel is a serious thing. We live in a climate that does not want to acknowledge error and does not want to acknowledge the significance of being wrong about Christ. And yet it is crucial. Souls depend on it. As we mentioned last week, you can kill the body, but it is the soul that is of much greater importance. Much greater importance. And yet there is a tolerance with false teaching and error and false gospels that is just prevalent within the church and our culture. And we must be clear on the truth and be clear in speaking the truth in love and graciousness that God might rescue some who are caught caught in these systems. Did Jesus not say there was a broad road that leads to destruction? Secondly, is this, that we might recognize the great privilege and grace that God has shown you in bringing you to the truth. The great privilege and grace that God has shown you who know the truth in coming to the truth. Some of you were shown the mercy of growing up in a Christian home where you heard the gospel and you saw it lived out, though imperfectly, in the lives of your parents. Some of you were the first to be saved in your family and come from other backgrounds. Some of you came from pagan backgrounds. That was outright error and heresy. But each of you who know Christ were at some point brought to the truth And he's likely to use you to share that truth with others and to help them to grow in the knowledge of Christ. So God is doing his work and we praise him that for us who know him, he's done it in our lives. And that's the Savior that we celebrate this morning. He has gathered us together as his people to celebrate him in truth and sincerity or faith. He has called us to dine with him at the banquet of salvation, his banquet, his table, to share in the wedding feast of the king, we being the bride and the loved ones. Let's pray and prepare your heart in worshiping God, dealing with any sin in your heart that needs to be reckoned with. Remember that there's nothing given to us by some special act of saving grace in taking these elements. They are merely elements. They are not changed into the body and the blood of Christ. They are remain what they are. We hold it in our hands, but they are symbols. They are a representation of Christ and what He sacrificed for us. A body broken and blood spilled in a violent death as He gave up His body to suffer the curse of the law, endure an anguish of soul by the Father, for our salvation. And we remember it. And in that remembrance, and in that remembrance by faith, and in that remembrance by faith and a heart yielded and submitted and pursuing Him, there is a unique grace that we have as the gathered people of God in worshiping Him together and delighting in Him and the common salvation, the common spirit, the common hope that we share together. So let's pray and then... Uh, The men will pass the elements. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that though there is so much darkness in this world, and though there are so many who bring a wrong message, that you have brought us the right one. We who know you. And we pray that our lives would reflect gratitude, thankfulness to you for your finished, completed work on the cross. And we realize that we stand 
totally and completely in the righteousness of Christ. It is a righteousness given to us, an obedience credited to us, a death counted in our place. And we are totally set free. And it is by our faith in Christ that you have granted as a gift that we obey and that we, by the work of the Spirit in our life, bear fruit of this relationship that we have with you. And we pray as your people that you would bear much fruit in us. And we'd ask you now that you would take as we gather and remember that sacrifice on our behalf, all of its implications, both for now and for the future, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would set our minds on things above, that you would remind us of that unique bond that we share in Christ and by the Spirit and commit ourselves to pursuing love of the brethren to the glory of God. Do your work in all of us now. And for those who don't know you, we would ask that today would be that day of salvation. That they would recognize that they are outside of your grace and yield and commit their lives to you, trusting only in what you have done for us in Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen.